We want to turn in our Bibles again this morning to the book of Galatians. If you haven't been with us, we've been working our way uh, through this great New Testament book. Uh, I have three sons. Uh, One is here in Dublin, and so I see him all the time. The other two call, and they call a lot. Andrew calls at lunchtime, uh, most working days, because at lunch he walks during his lunch hour, and so he doesn't want to just waste the time, so he calls me to talk during lunch. So I try to figure out what I can do while I'm talking to him. He always seems to be amazed that we have no new news in Dublin. Like We're supposed to be cable news network here or something, but... Then at afternoon, about time to gravitate toward the house, Peter calls and said, Dad, what's new in Dublin? And, well, nothing really too newsworthy. Not, really? Nothing? Really? Are you sure? There's nothing new. And, uh, but the last couple of weeks, Peter's called, and he says, i got a question. And then he launches into the book of Genesis. He's been studying the book of Genesis on his own. Uh, reading through the text and got a study Bible out and reading the notes. And uh, he's worked his way up. And just the last few days and of the chapters we want to touch on this morning, the story of Abraham and Abraham's children and how that relates uh, to history 2,000 years, 4,000 years ago and how Paul 2,000 years ago uh, picks that up and uses it in the book of Galatians. If you haven't been with us, Galatians is written by Paul back to what we call Turkey, back to the region of Galatia, to multiple churches, to those who have received the gospel and made some kind of profession of faith in Christ, some kind of outward commitment, and that's good. But Paul's hearing things about them, and he's concerned because there's some kind of shift or drift going on, and there's... Uh, a risk, one of two risks going on in the lives of the people that are receiving this letter. One is that they're going to walk away from the whole thing. They're just going to say, you know, we just, uh, that the Christian thing was a flash in the pan and we've moved on back to our pagan stuff and whatever. Uh, For those of Jewish background and Jewish heritage in Galatia, Paul has reached through the synagogues on the first missionary journey The danger is that they are beginning to think about replacing the gospel, the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ, with rules and do's and don'ts and a system of the law that doesn't even properly or healthily interpret the Old Testament law. But they want to, some of them, impose that Old Testament law back on the church and say, unless you do all these things, you can't even be a Christian in the first place, let alone a good Christian. And Paul's very concerned with that because he is the all-time champion of the grace of God. And Paul's gospel, from beginning to end, lived out in the book of Acts, written in Romans all the way down to Philemon and probably Hebrews. Paul's message is, you're saved by God's amazing grace. It's not your deal. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not godly enough. You're not moral enough to get there on your own. Only by God's amazing grace are you going to make it. And that's Paul's great message. And he hammers away over and over and over uh, to whoever will listen or whoever will read. And he speaks to us even today on that subject. So Paul has worked his way with us down through four chapters of Scripture. 
And it comes down to chapter 4, verse 21, where we want to pick it up this morning. There he says, tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? That's almost insulting, or it, it really is kind of insulting to those who champion themselves as uh, great law keepers, the people of the law. We are the people of the book. If Paul was writing today, he might write to a Baptist church and say, uh, come now, you tell me, you, you Bible Baptist people, don't you listen to the Bible? That's basically what he's saying to these people of a deep uh, Old Testament law experience who are tampering now with the gospel. You tell me, those of you who want to be under law, what does he mean by that? He means they want to trust the system of law-keeping for their spiritual well-being. Rather than leaning on what he's taught them and presented to them, they want to have their own mindset of these are the rules and we look at how we're doing and we compare ourselves to the rest of the world and we begin to declare ourselves on the basis of the curve. Uh, we're better than most and so we're pretty good law keepers and on the basis of that, we're going to merit God's favor and God's just going to have to bless us and welcome us into his presence. And Paul says, those of you that want to do that, uh, you that want to be under the law, don't you read the law? Don't you read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? Don't you read those books? Aren't you really familiar with the scripture? For it has been written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman or the slave woman, and one by the free woman. Now, Paul is going to uh, give us an illustration drawn from the book of Genesis. And uh, whether it's what he does here or a parable with Jesus or an illustration from a, a preacher on Sunday morning, you don't push illustrations too far or they'll break. You don't try to get uh, too much out of it. You, you say, what's the main point of the illustration? If you push Paul, too hard on Genesis here, you're going to miss the point that he's trying to make. So I think that'll be clear as we work our way through the next few verses. So hold on and listen carefully to Paul. It is written that Abraham had two sons, the two that are recorded for us in the book of Genesis are Ishmael and Isaac. And one was born to the Egyptian slave woman, and one is born to Sarah, Abraham's wife. And those two are going to become pictures of two ways of thinking, two theologies, two approaches to salvation, two approaches to everything. And so we must make the distinction based on Paul's illustration that he draws from Genesis. He says, but the son by the bondwoman was according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. Now, you got to know Genesis for this to make sense. And maybe a lot of you have not read Genesis or you haven't read Genesis lately or you've forgotten what you once knew about Genesis. Maybe you need to join Peter and working your way back through that. Greatest book in the Old Testament, I think. Tremendous uh, book of Scripture. And in that story, you come down to chapter 12 and you've gone through Adam and, and the descendants and down through Noah and you work your way through the Tower of Babel. You come down to chapter 12 and some people say chapter 12 is really the beginning of the Bible. Don't, 
that's not true. It really begins back in chapter 1. But chapter 12 is a shift into the life of Abraham. He's named Abram at the time. And God comes to Abram, and he's way over in what we would call Iraq and the Mesopotamian region. And he says, Abraham, Abram, I want you to do this. I want you to leave behind your world. He, he goes uh, north to the top of the Fertile Crescent, is there for uh, half a generation or so, and then works his way down into the Promised Land. But God says, Abraham, I want you to do this. I want you to uproot yourself from the known, the familiar, your comfort zone, and I want you to go where I'm going to lead you, and then I'm going to do some amazing things. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you more descendants than you can count. And, and then beyond that, I'm going to bless the nations of the world through you. It's incredible stuff. And the Bible says later uh, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He has a new birth experience in a very Old Testament kind of way. And he, he trusts God at that point. God, I, it, it's over my head and it's a huge assignment. But I will do this and I will follow your lead. And the Bible says that was true faith and that was counted uh, to Abraham's world and, and his account is placed righteousness. Great, great moment in Scripture. Now some time rocks along and, and you come down toward ch ch uh, chapter 15 and you come to the Abrahamic covenant and a promise is made that he's going to have a son and through that son is going to come the fulfillment of these promises that God's already made to Abraham. And it's exciting. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm old and, and Sarah's old and, and you're talking about a son and, but the idea sounds good and it's great and, and the son doesn't come and the son doesn't come and the son doesn't come and Sarah begins to scheme like you and I begin to scheme sometimes when God doesn't do what we want him to do quick enough. And she comes up with a plan, uh, a surrogate mother plan. You used to hear that 20 years ago or so. That was being spoken of in our culture. You don't hear too much of that anymore. But here's the idea. Uh, since this, uh, this woman can't have a child, we'll find one who can, and she'll be a stand-in, and she will bear the child as a surrogate mother, and that child will be the child that will fulfill all these promises that God has made. God had a wonderful plan, but God apparently is not actively involved in what's going on here. Either God doesn't care anymore, or God's asleep, or God's got a lot of other people to take care of. Uh, somehow he's forgotten my situation. And you may, if you're not careful, feel the same way some days. God's busy. I still believe in God, but I don't see him at work today in my life. I don't see him at work today in my circumstances. And so Sarah comes up with this plan. Uh, we'll figure out, we'll have a son, and we'll do it this way. Uh, after all, the, the people of the world do it this way, and we can do that too. Abraham, this will take care of that. And then you'll have a son, and God's promises can come to you. And so along comes Ishmael, and Paul says he's born according to the flesh. That doesn't mean that Isaac didn't have flesh and bone also. It just means it was a fleshly plan. It was a, a very human plan. It was not a spiritual thing. It was man's best effort to do what man thinks God might want done. And you can do the same thing in your own kind of way. When you don't see God's plan happening like 
you envisioned it. And so here comes Ishmael born according to the flesh, according to man's plan or woman's plan in that particular case. But Abraham is right in there. He, he is complicit with the whole thing. And they trust what they can do without God to fulfill God's purposes. But Paul says, and oh, by the way, there's that other son, Isaac. And Isaac comes a good bit later. And he's born to the free woman. And he says, when Isaac comes, he's born through the promise. The promise. I've spoken often of uh, my former teacher, Walter Kaiser, uh, Old Testament giant, uh, and his ongoing, his life theme in all of his teaching for 50 years in several seminaries, Walter Kaiser's big theme was the promise, the unifying factor of all the Old Testament scripture that runs right on into the New Testament, that there was a promise that's personalized in the person of Jesus, and that all the scriptures aimed at the coming of the promised one, the Messiah. And Kaiser's, of course, absolutely right. And he says, Isaac came according to the promise, God's plan, God's huge plan, God's overriding plan, God's plan that you're not privileged to know the detail. God does not have to explain everything to you and me. And the sooner we can learn that, the better off we are. God does not owe you an explanation for what's happening or not happening with your career or your family life or any other factors in your life. God doesn't have to explain to you how he's working out what he intends for your life. But Paul says, Isaac came. He came according to the promise. Plan A. Ishmael, according to the flesh. Plan B, not God's plan. Isaac, plan A, what God had in mind. He says, this is allegorically speaking. He uses the Greek verb allegoreo, from which we get allegory, allegory in the English language. It's not surprising, is it? And he says, uh, I'm speaking an uh, allegorical language. In other words, again, don't push it too far. I'm just going to take this Old Testament story that you Jewish background people are familiar with, and I'm going to use it to illustrate a major principle that you must understand. It says, for these women are two covenants, two commitments, two uh, two-way commitments between God and man, uh, two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar, and Hagar is the Egyptian bondwoman or, or slave, uh, Sarah's slave. Mount Sinai is in the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt today. In the book of Exodus, when the nation leaves uh, Egypt and they go through the water, they, den, uh, they go southeast down into the Sinai Peninsula to Jabal Musa, the mountain of Moses. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He receives the Ten Commandments, comes down, and presents the law to the nation. It's a great, great moment. There's nothing bad. There's nothing negative at all about any of that. That's all God's doing. And nobody knows that better than the Apostle Paul. But he's speaking here allegorically. So what's Paul talking about? He says, you got two covenants here, two ways of seeing. And one comes from Sinai. Now, you and I hear Sinai, and we think, Sinai's good. Ten Commandments, Moses, that's good. 
The Galatian readers of this letter think, Sinai, that's good. That's who we are. Uh, the law came down. We're the people of the law. That God gave us the law. The law is good. We love the Ten Commandments. We love all of that. We love even Leviticus. We love the, the law. And so we think positively about it. Paul in the allegory is saying, let me invite you to think another way about that. You want to be under the law. You want to be under the rules. I have something better in mind for you. But, but Hagar, the Egyptian... In the allegory, it's going to be associated with Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. Okay, there's your plan. And it's a very human uh, plan in the allegory. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Now, to the Galatian reader and to some people today, this is an insulting allegory. Because they love Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem is the hub, the centerpiece of the faith. Everything uh, comes out of Jerusalem and hinges on Jerusalem. And even in the, the New Testament Christian faith, it's about Jesus uh, dying in Jerusalem and rising again in Jerusalem and ascending to heaven in Jerusalem. And, and we're sort of Jerusalem-centered. But in the allegory, Paul says, Hagar is Mount Sinai down in Arabia but for our illustration, that corresponds to the present day Jerusalem or Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And he says that because those in the Galatian audience reading the letter are beginning to build their faith on the platform of keeping the law that came out of that world. And Paul says she is in slavery with her children. Oh, Galatians, oh, Galatians. He might say, oh, Georgians, you want to count on the law? Do you really want to count on your ability? Do you really want to count on your personal merit in the presence of a holy God? You want to be on your own? You want to uh, present your merits? He says, that Jerusalem, that earthly Jerusalem is in slavery with all of her children, all those who look to that as their final answer, uh, they're in trouble, they're in slavery. Verse 26, he says, but the Jerusalem above is free. So he's talking about two Jerusalems, the earthly Jerusalem, and he says, and earthly Jerusalem today, 50 AD, or whenever Paul's writing this, uh, earthly Jerusalem today is spiritually in trouble because it's not looking to the grace of God, it's looking to self preservation and self-merit but the jerusalem above the other jerusalem is free it's spiritually free and she is our mother that's where our heart is that's our orientation this little minister's manual i've had uh, since i first became a pastor and i've used it for hundreds of weddings or funerals weddings too but mostly for funerals and it's got all these scriptures in here that are suggested for funeral services. And one of those uh, that's in there says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem, John says in Revelation. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Something coming down from above. Mr. Law in the book of John is Nicodemus. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. 
and he is a Pharisee, and Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. He's a theologian. He's a guy that's responsible for spiritual truth. And he comes to Jesus by night because he's fascinated by what Jesus is teaching. And uh, Jesus says, changes the subject on him and says, don't you know that you must be born again, which can be translated, you must be born from above? Nicodemus is puzzled and asks some goofy questions. And he says, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't get this? To be really on solid footing, you've got to tie into that which comes from above. And Paul here, uh, after that, is writing about a Jerusalem from above that's free. He says, that's our mother. That's our home base. That's where we need to turn. He says, for it is written, rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. That's a quote. It's in all capital letters you see on the screen, meaning it's Old Testament scripture. It comes from Isaiah 54, and Isaiah is dealing with uh, the exile into which the, the Jewish people are going to go uh, and all their struggles. And uh, Isaiah's word to his generation was, there is a future time coming of great blessing. And Paul takes Isaiah, lists it, and applies it here. And he says, when you deal in the world of the promise, there's future blessing. God is in the business of doing things beyond your expectation and beyond your capacity, beyond what you could ever accomplish. You or all of you together, God is doing great things. And he says the descendants of what God does are way more than those through anything man can bring to pass. So he's talking about spiritual descendants and a, a progressive spiritual plan. And you, brethren, verse 28, hear this now. It's the short little verse in the passage. Verse 28, and you, brethren, like Isaac. Remember, Isaac's the second son by Sarah, the one born according to the proper system, even though it's old parents and it seems impossible. And along comes Isaac. And he says, like Isaac, you, brethren, are children of promise. You're not, if you're real Christians, you're not children of your own labors. You're not children of your own merit or anybody else's system of merit. You're children of the promise. You're children of grace. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now also. Now, if you go back and you study Genesis, you come to a point, and it may have been a small thing, it may have been just uh, two half-brothers picking on each other or, or the big brother picking on the little brother. Uh, but Ishmael does something that's offensive to Sarah, does something to little Isaac. And she's offended and she calls for the expelling of Hagar, the Egyptian, and her son Ishmael. Get them out of here. Just get them out of here because they're going to interfere with the plan. And Sarah's still trying to control the plan. Paul says in verse 29, but as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted the one born according to the Spirit. According to the Spirit, that means Isaac came according to God's plan. And things are messing with that. Now, verse 30, he says, but what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. 
And then Paul tries to draw it together at the end of our paragraph this morning. He says, so then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Oh, Galatians, oh, Georgians, you don't want to be children of the flesh. You don't want to be children who present your best effort. You want to be children of the promise. You want to be children of the free woman. All this is Paul using Old Testament scripture to try to illustrate what you want in your life and your initial coming to God is the grace of God on your part. You're saved by grace through faith and nothing else. You can't add to that. You can't supplement that. You can't polish that. If you're redeemed in Christ, it's by the grace of God, this amazing gift that comes down through Jesus Christ. Now, as Christians, what do you do with your life? You want to live by grace, and that's what he's going to talk about in next week's passage. You live out a life of grace so that the same grace that saves you saturates your life and your value system and the choices that you make with the rest of your life all the way into eternity. But you want to be of the promise, God's plan, and not your own. It's so easy to try to come up with your own. There's some consequences to doing that. Uh, human relationships are uh, complicated. Boy, you, you go home and you reread Genesis, those chapters I'm talking about. And Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac and years down the road, Abraham is thinking, yeah, how did I ever allow this to happen? And all of our human manipulating of the story, we've created so many complexities. And Hagar hates Sarah, and Sarah can't stand Hagar, and Ishmael and Isaac, they're two sons, and I love them both dearly, but uh, it's inevitable. One's got to rise above the other, and this, there's going to be a clash, and it comes all the way down into the Jewish-Arab world of our own generation. When we take charge of what's going on in our lives, we will mess it up. Sooner or later, we'll mess it up unless God is operative. There's a delay in the fulfillment. Uh, Isaac comes 14 years after Ishmael. I wonder what would have happened if they'd stayed with plan A all along. The blessings reduced or confused, and the testimony of the Lord's people is confused. Don't mess up what God wants to do in your life by trying to take it over because you don't think God's doing it fast enough. And good folks do that all the time, every day. And we're all inclined to do that. Uh, if things are not going our way, I know what I think God wants to be going on, but I don't see it happening. So let me set the stage for God to, to finish up. Or, or now that God has set the stage, let me just finish it up. And I'll do it uh, on my part. The promise that unifying theme of the Bible, the promise that centers on the person of Jesus is God's assurance of his best, but in his timing and in his way. The promise produces God's will. The promise produces God's glory. The promise produces spiritual growth and exceptional things that are there for our good and for the benefit of others. Sarah had a problem, and Abraham bought into it, uh, the problem of this child issue, and she tried to solve it on her own. 
and she made a big mess of things. Every time you try to solve it on your own, you're going to mess up. Every time you lean, truly lean on the Lord for the issues in your life, you'll find victory. It may not be storybook. It may not make it on the Hallmark Channel. It may not work out where everything looks rosy at the end, but it will work out for your good because God is in control. And God's system is always, always, always better. The promise system that starts at Genesis and is punctuated in the person of Jesus, that system is the winner. That's plan A. It will always be plan A. For everybody from Abraham and before Abraham and from Abraham all the way down into whoever rode in the car with you today, including yourself. Plan A, God's plan. Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Oh, Sarah. Oh, God, I can just hear the mind of God. Sarah, precious daughter, I've got this. Trust me. Abraham, precious son, I've got this. Trust me with everything. I've got it. I can do this. I have a plan for you and through you that's better than anything you can come up with. Trust me, trust me, trust me. And there'll be several hundred people at First Baptist Church this morning in the two services uh, that need to do exactly that. You and I need to get up and go out of here. We need to go to Sunday school and back to home and lunch and and the events of the day. But we need to go trusting. God, I'm not going to mess it up by getting in your way. I will trust you with my family, with my health, with my career, with my finances, with everything about my life. It is yours, Lord. Work through me and and take everything about me and put it in line with the promise, the promise plan of God. That's the title of Kaiser's book, The Promise Plan of God. What is the promise plan of God for you today? That's what you want. That's what you must commit to, to experience God's highest blessing in your life. Everybody in the room has question marks. If something comes up about your life and your faith and you're trying to put all these things together into one nice, neat, pretty picture and it's why this and why not that and when this and why hasn't yet and this and we've got all these questions and God just says, let me just keep putting the pieces and you just be obedient and you do what you know to do and you follow my lead and at the end of it all, it will be glorious And I don't have to explain it to you in the meantime. Trust me, trust me, trust me. Bow with me in prayer, if you will, please. Father, we're grateful this morning that you are involved in the details. You're the sovereign Lord of all the universe. But you're the Lord of my life this morning. You're the Lord of this church and this community. Father, we want to look to you and trust and we come confessing that sometimes we try to help your plan out or manipulate your plan or make it our plan uh, in a way that interferes with you and and we know that only hinders your purposes we want to walk by faith conclusively completely profoundly walk by faith 
trusting you with our lives. And so we do come with our families. We do come with our careers. We do come with our ministries. We do come with our health and our finances. We come with all of it, Lord, and we set it before you, and we, and we plead with you, you be the author. You be the one who brings it to pass for your glory, for your purposes, in your perfect timing. We look to you in faith, expectantly, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.